ladies and gentlemen. I know there's been a lot of bad stuff going on the past week or so. A lot of sadness, a lot of death. But I have something to take your mind off it. I have finally finished my first external hard drive. In the words of Public Enemy's Chuck D, with the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope is all is well. Hope all is bliss in circumstances. Yeah, a lot of circumstances this week. Eh? Um, you know, I've talked about it before, um, and there's probably a day where I'll or an episode anyway where I'll talk about it again. Um, but this is not going to be the episode <laughs> where I'm going to do it. Um, I'm obviously talking about um, Israel-Palestine again, uh, kicking off. Um, I talked about it on episode 126, um, promptly tit- apt- aptly titled um, hashtag Free Palestine. So you know you could take you could take that for wherever you you know wherever you think. Um, but you know I've. Uh, I just, um, I just, I don't know. I just don't have the mental energy to actually genuinely talk about it. Or actually, I haven't even found a good, you know, a good article to read off. Um, a lot of, um, a lot of things going on in, especially mainstream media right now, is just um, really shit and uh, just disappointing, to be honest, in terms of its uh, commentary. And uh, yeah, I just don't have energy to, um, you know, to try and wade through that kind of garbage at the moment. Um, so you're getting what you get in with this one, with this episode. Um, but, you know, just wanted to acknowledge it, but, um, you know, and also to take your mind off it, I genuinely have uh, finished my first external hard drive. And I feel like it's a, I don't know, it's an interesting milestone, I guess, because I've had it for like nearly 10 years. Um, I remember my I think uh, I think my dad bought it for me um, with uh, I think just before university or just before me going to university, and um, it's two terabytes. And you know, like I said, I've had it for nearly ten years, um, specifically eight, um, as far as I know. Maybe long, maybe a bit longer. Um, but yeah, you know, I finally finally finished it um, yesterday, and it was. Um, it's it's only because it's only because um, I started um, you know putting all my photography on there and then um, when I say all of it, I mean all of it I'm talking about the raw files the JPEG files and also the edited shots as well so everything I back up everything um, on that front and it's a it you know it equates for a lot it equates for a lot of space I also have my podcast on there pretty much you know everything uh, podcast wise I've done over the past um, you know eight years including probably i think i think my uni radio stuff is there as well um i'm pretty sure about that um so yeah everything's down that front uni work as well probably my a couple of short films are in there as well and uh, just a ton of essays and shit um and also my facebook data um because i don't know just have it just have it i guess um but yeah it's all there and it's kind of weird i guess i'm um, just having a piece of a lot of my life in the past 10 years 
in the hard drive and just it's just going to you know sit there i'm going to take it with me um you know whenever i move out of here move out of my spot at the moment and it'll be somewhere to just be there and uh yeah it's just going to it's going to be a very interesting time capsule to to dig through at some point in my life i don't know when but there's going to be a point and uh, it's going to be a very fascinating day indeed <clears throat> So with that said, um, we have, yeah, we have, a, and I have another one. I'm going to begin um, chomping into um, probably sometime, I don't know, today or tomorrow. I've still got stuff that I need to move off my laptop. Um, but yeah, I've got a fresh one, got fresher and significantly smaller um, in size, but not in space, which is good. Um, but yeah, just, uh, I don't know, I just find, I just find the use of storage very interesting on that front, you know what I mean? Especially the personal shit. Everyone just puts their stuff on like a hard drive or God forbid in the cloud. So I'm I'm not convinced about the cloud, by the way. I'm not convinced. Like I, do, I have some stuff, you know, on like drop on my like my Dropbox, but it's like stuff that I used. Uh, I used Dropbox when I was um I think it was like in sixth form. So there's some sixth form shit in there that I don't really care about too much. Um, but with that said, I probably still want to just you know take it off there and put it somewhere else instead. Um, but yeah, I just value having it on like an external hard drive, for example, you know what I mean? And not just on the cloud. I don't like shit on the cloud because, you know, the cloud ain't always accessible. Um, and, you know, I don't want it to be, I want my shit to be accessible. Uh, but anyway, with that said, little, I guess, um, personal note to begin with. Uh, let's kick on with the show. We have this episode. We have uh, two uh, film segments and uh, arts and environment, uh, which we will begin with the on the latter, as I've been trying to actively kind of focus on whenever I see something of note um, pertaining to the environment. I like to cover it. Um, just you know, something I've tried to focus on um, over time as time goes by, because you know it gradually. Even now, as we talk, is probably the most important thing in life. But, you know, is what it is. Anyway, we have all those topics. But before we begin, we have email. Socials, soon to be no socials. Uh, well, soon to be maybe IG, but, you know, who knows. But definitely not Twitter after <laughs> after New Year's. Um, but, yeah, we have that. And uh, what was it? Uh, writing as well in the full show notes, as well as the music and pro- podcast under the 5 VPN. Um, I do have an interview on WG coming through um, hopefully next week. Um, I'm debating whether to put it with the show as just, you know, as part of the Thursday show or just um, post it as its own thing on the Friday. Um, so regardless of how I'm going to put it in or how I'm going to post it, it will be posted sometime next week on Thursday or Friday. So stay tuned for that one. And uh, yeah, let the beat drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where, well, wonder what's number one. Um, Israel declares a state of war after mass launches attacks and takes hostages and obviously that's um, putting all of that very, 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 very broadly. Um, but obviously much more stuff has happened since then, since I wrote that anyway, wrote that down a few days ago. 
Um, over 2,000 die in a 6.3 magnitude earthquake in Afghanistan. Um, bedbugs originated in France or in the UK. Happy days. Thanks, France. Um, study estimates. Uh, climate crisis is costing $16 million an hour in extreme weather change. And lastly, the Bibby Stockholm Barge is back in action next week. Good to know that the Conservatives haven't really, you know, cooled down on their fucking nut jobbery. Outstanding. All right, let's begin with this environment piece. Um, like I said, I'd begin with. Um, this is kind of pertaining to COP28, which is coming soon. I forget when. I think sometime in December or November, I forget. Anyway, regardless of that, um, this is a uh, piece from the BBC written by Matt McGrath, Mark Pointing, with a YN, uh, Becky Dale and Jana Tauschkinski. 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 T-A-U-S-C-H-I-N-S-K-I. Tauschinski. Tauschinski? 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 Anyway, uh, world, bre- world breaches key 1.5 uh, uh, centi- Celsius. Yeah, Celsius, the uh, warming mark for record number of days. So let's jump right in. On about a third of days into uh, in 2023, the average global temperature was at least 1.5 degrees higher um, than pre-industrial levels. Staying below that mark long term is widely considered crucial to avoid the most damaging impacts of climate change. But 2023 is quote-unquote on track to the hottest year on record, and 2024 could be hotter. Quote, it's a sign we're reaching levels we haven't seen before, says Dr. Melissa Lazenby from the University of Sussex. This day's finding comes after record September temperatures and a summer of extreme weather events across much of the world. And, um, you know, um, to be UK biased um, for a second, it's been very warm here in, in, in you know, early October um, breaching into mid-October now. It's, it's been very decent, you know, um, like 25 degree days, you know, maybe 12 degree nights. That's kind of been the average, right? Um, it's apparently soon to get a lot colder um, over the next week or so. I mean, literally, I'm looking at the weather now. It's going, it's 20 degrees today um, on the Wednesday I record. has been raining um, sometime as well. It's going to rain Thursday and Friday. And that's 18 and 20 degrees. And then it's literally going 13. The highs of Saturday, Sunday, Monday are 13, 11, and 12. And the nights will be 3, 2, and 6 degrees. So, fuck. It's gonna, that's, that's, that's really stark. <laughs> Just the, the, the temperature difference is crazy. Anyway. When political leaders gathered in Paris in December 2015, they signed an agreement to keep the long-term rise in global temperatures this century well below 2 degrees and to make every effort to keep it under 1.5. The agreed limits refer to the difference between global average temperatures now and what they were in pre-industrial record uh, pre-industrial period between 1850 and 1900 before the widespread use of fossil fuels. Breaching these Paris thresholds doesn't mean going over them for a day or week, but instead involves going beyond the limit across a 20 or 30 year average. This long term average warming figure currently sits around 1.1 to 1.2. But the more, uh, but the more often 1.5 degrees is breached uh, it, for individual days, the closer the world gets to breaching this mark in the longer term. The first time this happened in the modern era was for a few days in December 2015. When politicians were signing the deal on the 1.5 degree threshold. 
Since then, the limit has been repeatedly broken, typically only for short periods. 2016, influenced by a strong El Nino event, natural climate event, uh, climate shift that tends to increase global temperatures, the world saw around 75 days that went above that mark. The BBC analysis of data from the Copernicus Climate Change Service shows that up to two... Uh, to October, 2nd of October, I meant, I think they meant to say. It, says, it just says 2 October, so 2nd of October, around 86 days um, in 2023 have been over 1.5 degrees warmer than pre-industrial average. This beats the 2016 record well before the end of the year. There is some uncertainty in the exact number of days have breached the 1.5 Celsius threshold because the numbers reflect a global average which can come with small data discrepancies. But the margin by which 2023 has already passed 2016 figures gives confidence the record has already been broken. Quote, the fact that we're reaching 1.5 Celsius anomaly daily and for a longer number of days is concerning, said Dr. Dazenby. One important factor in driving up these temperature anomalies is the onset of El Nino conditions. This was confirmed just a few months ago, although it is still weaker than its 2016 peak. The conditions are helping to pump heat from the eastern Pacific Ocean into the atmosphere. This may explain why 2023 is, is the first year in which 1.5 Celsius, Celsius anomaly has been recorded between June and October, when combined with long-term uh, warning from burning fossil fuels. Quote, this is the first time we're seeing this in the Northern Hemisphere summer, which is unusual pretty shocking to see what's been going on, said Professor Ed Hawkins from the University of Reading. I know our Australian colleagues are particularly worried about what's going to be the consequences for them uh, with their summer approaching, for instance, extreme wildfires, especially with El Nino. Unquote. Days when the temperature difference has exceeded 1.5 Celsius continued into September with more than 1.8 Celsius above the pre-industrial average. The month as a whole was 1.75 Celsius above the pre-industrial level, and the year to date is around 1.4 above the 1850 to 1900 average, according to Copernicus um, Climate Change Service. Whenever I hear the word Copernicus, I think of um, uh, I think of this um, Family Guy cutaway where someone gets in line and this Italian guy goes, "Hey, yo, Copernicus," and that's why. That's why I, I kind of half stop when I whenever I see the word Copernicus. Uh, while 2023 is on track to become the warmest year on record, it is not expected to breach the 1.5 warning uh, warming threshold as a global average across the full 12 months. Oh well, that's positive, isn't it? Uh, the world's oceans has also been experiencing unusually high temperatures this year, and in turn, releasing further heat into the atmosphere. Uh, North, uh, quote, the North Atlantic Ocean is the warmest we've ever recorded. If you look at the North Pacific Ocean, there's a tongue of anonymously, anomalous, anomalously, not not anonymous, anomalous, um, warm water stretching all the way from Japan to California, said Dr. Jennifer Francis from the Woodwell Climate Research Center in the U.S. While greenhouse, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are increasing average temperatures, the precise reasons for why the CC temperatures have surged is not fully known. One theory, which is still uncertain, is that a fall in air pollution from shipping across New the North Atlantic has reduced the number of small particles and increased warming. Up, to, up until now, these aerosols had uh, been partly offsetting the greenhouse 
uh, the effect of greenhouse gas emissions by reflecting some of the sun's energy and keeping the Earth's surface cooler than it would have been otherwise. Another perhaps less well-known factor is the situation around Antarctica. Uh, There have been ongoing concerns about the state of sea ice around the coldest continent, with data showing the levels far below any previous winter. But according to some experts, two spikes in temperature in recent months in Antarctica, triggered by natural variability, have boosted the global average. However, it's difficult to identify the precise influence of long-term human-caused warming. Quote, in early July... Antarctica got really warm. They saw record temperatures, which is still 20 or 30 degrees Celsius below zero, said Dr. Carsten Hausstein from the University of Leipzig. And what we see with 1.5 and 1.8 anomalies we are seeing now is partially down to Antarctica again, unquote. While the northern hemisphere will naturally cool in autumn and winter, there is a view that the large temperature differences from the pre-industrial period may persist, especially as El Nino uh, reaches a peak at the end of the year end of this year or only next. Researchers believe that these ongoing high-temperature anomalies should be a wake-up call uh, for political leaders who will gather in Dubai. There you go, Dubai in November for the COP28 climate summit. So just, just I always find it so funny that they're doing a climate summit in Dubai. Like, it's just, it's, it literally just, it just, makes it obsolete you know just off the off the back off the face of it on the face of it it's just yeah let's do a climate summit in dubai that's just that's a good shout let's have people let's have politicians and you know climate activists and all this stuff let's have all these people um fly um all most mostly you know a lot of them with you know private jets and all that kind of stuff right let's have them all fly to dubai and then let's have dubai host uh, where they'll need a lot of electricity and all of that kind of shit. Um, yeah, let's have Dubai host. Yeah, that's a good shout. A climate summit. Dubai climate summit. Outstanding. Anyway, action on emissions is needed, they say, and not just in the long term. In March, UN urged countries to accelerate climate action, stressing effective options to reduce emissions were available now. From renewables to electric vehicles, quote, it's not just about reaching an end goal of net zero by 2050, it's about how we get there, said Professor Hawkins. The IPCC, the UN's climate body, very clearly says we need to half emissions over this decade. Excuse me, and the, and then get them to net zero. It's just it's not just about reaching net zero at some point. It's about the pathway to get there. Unquote. And as this year's extreme uh, weather events have shown, from heat waves in Europe to extreme rainfall in Libya, the consequences of climate change increase with every fraction of a degree of warming. And that you know kind of goes back to. What I said in a week where where we have fucking uh whole ass sixteen million an hour an hour um dedicated to um extreme weather damage. Like that that's how much it's costing us. Um and that's a lot. And uh yeah, I'd start yeah, I I always say this to the end of whenever I do an environment piece, which is most of the time negative. Um, and for good reason, and I'll say again, I have no idea where to go from that. Um, no kind of solutions, I'm not kind of fi- f- smart for that, but it's, I feel like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a duty of awareness, I feel like I need to just, um, say these things, you know, to say, and to, you know, even, even today, right, even this week, right, when, um, so much shit is going on, 
and you know in UK Labour conference and the Tories are doing demonic shit every fucking day and they're saying demonic shit every fucking day and people just getting up in arms about that every day. Um, obviously, Israel-Palestine right now is um, taking over a majority of the headlines and, and a lot of the news cycle in mainstream media anyway. And, um, you know, and there's no talk about climate. While there sh- that should be an everyday, you know, chat. There should be an everyday cycle of um, talk about it and debate about Not debate about it, hopefully. No, hopefully there's no debate about this shit anymore. Uh, but, you know, just conversation about it and, uh, you know, having it in in the minds of people so that's me doing that to you the listener in some fashion and hopefully um that gives you some form of pause in some fashion if i've done that in any way consider that a success on my part i will consider that success um but yeah man something that always needs to be accounted for every day Okay, so this is a quick one um, about the art, well, from the arts segment, and uh, this is via Wired, uh, written by Amanda Hoover. It's called uh, Voice Actors Are Bracing to Compete with Talking AI. And, um, you know, I feel like bracing is um, an interesting word to pick, and I, I, I would personally sh- say that they're already, it's already hit, you know what I mean? The, the impact has already come down. Um, you know, I, I talked to I talked to a um, a professional voice actor a couple of months ago, and I asked him just you know out of interest, um, what it, how how do you get into voice acting, right? Because I because you know it's it's not it's it's not it's not every day that you talk to a voice actor. So I thought you know I thought it was a good a good good question to ask, and. Um, you know, they kept it very real, and one of the notable things um, they said was that, you know, AI coming, basically, and that's going to make shit harder. So, you know, unless you're a very notable voice actor, um, it's going to, or, you know, or you're respected in the field, um, and you have, you know, credentials on that front, if you're starting out, that's going to, that shit is going to be hard, because people ain't looking for people that ain't done no voice acting, you know what I mean, or, 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 uh, um, or haven't got the credentials, so to speak, right, they'll just go on AI and just do that, um, easy, easy, much easier, much easier, much, um, uh, easy money, um, and saves money, um, so anyway, let's just jump right into this. Quincy Surismith, great name, um, is a radio journalist and actor, but you may also hear his voice and never realise it. It's because he's been the voice of Thai-speaking cartoons, chattering background crowds and characters without major speaking roles. It's not all glamorous. Uh, quote, I'm making grunting noises, getting beat up by some guy, Surismith says. It takes specific Im- uh, improv and acting skills, unquote. Soon those grunting and background chatter performances could be at risk of being replaced by artificial intelligence. Voice acting is a highly specialized skill, but generative AI is becoming more adept at talking back, from cloning celebrity voices to narrating audiobooks. The tech doesn't just create more competition for jobs. Voice actors also worry about their vocals being stolen. How do I say stolen? Do I say stolen stolen or stolen? Stolen. I say stolen, but I said stolen for some reason. Stolen. Uh, Being stolen and copied to promote mis- and disinformation becoming uh, victims of defects or hearing themselves appear in pornographic content without their consent. 
All situations that would damage their professional reputations and plunder their biggest, most recognisable asset, their voices. Industry experts agree that some jobs will be lost in the Gen AI boom. Cheap entry-level voice work can likely be replaced by machine-generated vocals, but they're also optimistic that AI can't fully automate what voice actors do. To get the right motion, dialects, and artistry behind the craft, producers will still need to hire humans uh, for animated characters and high production value shows. Having human actors to convey cultural nuances is vital, but Sarah Smith Smith worries that AI may be cheaper to hire for some of the smaller gigs. Quote, is that something production companies will think? Hey, that's the replaceable part, unquote. Um, AI tends to make the voices as boring as possible, says Dan Nanod, um, president of Word Voices Organization, a non-profit association for voice work. The technology could be a low-cost fix for companies that make, say, informational HR videos, but synthetic voices don't engage people in the same way as humans do. Quote, every voice is different, every accent is different, and I think that's one of the things AI cannot duplicate, Nanod says. I wonder if, um, just a side note, I wonder if um, someone just takes my voice and uses it for AI because, you know, I've, I've, I've been thinking about that, you know, I've, I've got a lot of hours of me talking um, across, you know, across podcasts under 5VPN um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's plenty of, that's plenty of, um, there's plenty of uh, uh, material to use there. Um, so, you know, I'm sure it won't be done now, but, you know, one day. One day it might happen. Somebody just might download all my shit, just scrape every ounce of me of me talking, and uh, you know make a make an AI of it. Who knows? Someday, I, I'm I'm guessing. Still, companies are eyeing the opportunities. Last week, Spotify announced a pilot for a translation feature for podcasts. It's powered in part by OpenAI's generative voice tech and translates podcasters' voices into other languages. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, the first batch features uh, popular figures like, like actors Dax Shepard and Monica Padman, sportscaster Bill Simmons, and former Daily Show host Trevor Noah. Then OpenAI also announced it had integrated voice tech into its chatbot, ChatGPT, so people can speak back and forth with it. I don't care about that. <laughs> I just don't give a fuck. Uh, the rapid advances in tech threaten more than just voice artists' jobs. The actors also worry that their voices could be used to create new content they haven't signed off on. Two years ago, the team behind Roadrunner, a documentary about the late Anthony Bourdain, used AI to clone his voice and have read it uh, and have it re- read an email he had written. The move set off alarm bells in Hollywood and raised ethical questions about how AI might bring people's voices, gestures, and words back to life after they died. Many of these concerns have carried over into the ongoing contract negotiations between the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio uh, Artists, and the Hollywood Studios. Some voice work may be done by people in the SAG-AFTRA union, but there are many jobs not protected, and lots of voice work uh, falls to working-class people in an already precarious industry, says Tim Friedlander, president of the National Association of Voice Actors. Now is the moment for voice artists to carefully watch their contracts. If their work is cloned, either by producers or rogue actors, pulling it from ads or shows and regraying it, their recognisable vocals could be used far beyond their original intent. Quote, Instability is already very disconcerting uh, when, you, when you're competing against other humans, Freelander says, and now you have to compete against yourself. Unquote. As it stands, 
SAG members are on strike as they try to negotiate with Hollywood Studios to ensure their next contract offers, quote, informed consent and fair compensation when a digital replica is made of a performer, unquote, or when their voice, likeness, or performance is altered by AI. Even if the Actors Union gets stronger AI protections than those granted through the contract uh, the Writers Guild of America secured with Hollywood Studios last week, it won't protect all voice actors. Those working on, say, video games still need guardrails protecting their work. Talks between SAG and major video game companies concluded last week with no deal. Far away from the strikes, other voice actors are eyeing generative AI cautiously. African voice actors are currently preparing to negotiate fair contracts for work that address the issues. As more companies try to diversify voices, the demand for African voices is up, says Jennifer Canari, administrator of the Voice Actors League of Kenya, a network for voice artists. Like many other voice actors, Canari is not anti-AI, but wants to see voice actors fairly compensated if their voices are cloned to be used outside the performance they gave. Quote, It would not be a bad thing to have an African voice on an African doll or toy, Canari says. Actors like her need clear contracts on how their voice will be used and for how long. Jazz Mystery, um, yeah, Mystery, a M I S T R I, by the way, not mystery, but mystery. A voice actor in Nairobi, also uh, with the Voice Actors League of Kenya, it's a great name for anything, Voice Actors League of Kenya, um, says working in African accents and dialects has advantages now. There is no cloning us yet, Mystery says. We have so many different dialects, we have so many different accents, there is huge opportunity, huge demand for our voice. We're in a great position to have a say, to determine how we interact with these AI platforms, unquote. And I feel like that's a very good positive note to end on, um, on that front. Um, you know, the fact that African voice artists can have, have you know, already recognised the threat, and um, because it's, um, because, because obviously, you know, AI projects are, at this point, very westernized and are focused on, you know, English language at the moment. Um, you know, African languages are much more diverse and much more varied. There are, you know, for, for pick an African country and there's, you know, several dialects to 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 to, to chomp into um, and to learn off of. Um, and, you know, I can't imagine um, open AI giving a shit. Um, about about the use of uh, about about the use of Yoruba, you know, what I mean, they, they don't give a fuck right now um, at this point, but they will at some point. These companies will start giving a shit, and when they start giving a shit, hopefully at that point, the likes of the um, what was it, the United Voices of Kenya, uh, uh, what was it? <laughs> Let me look that up because it's great. This is a great fucking name, Voice Actors League of Kenya. Hopefully, you know, they have everything, you know, locked tight. And um, and uh, they get their proper conversation for all of that. So big ups to them. So let's head on to our two film segments, and the first one is via the Guardian. Remember Amna Modin. Um, and it's called Where Are the Works on Black British Urban Films? And uh, as you can imagine, this is right up my street, so let's jump right in onto what this one is. The black British urban genre should be as valuable to British film culture and academia as the French New Wave and British social realism. Lead an academic has said, Clive Umwonka, um, a associate professor, professor of film, culture and society at UCL, 
University College London, uh, began his academic research in 2010 during a critically important era of black representation in British film and TV. And, you know, I've been um, talking about, obviously, you know, the likes of Top Boy recently, um, on the likes of Digging Digits and just everywhere else. Um, and also in a review that I did, spoiler-free review for season five. Um, and, you know, that was a very significant time. Um, so let's just jump right into the rest of that. Uh, quote, if you look at my bookshelf, which is quite extensive, as I came through the classic film studies tradition, I have dozens of books on the French New Wave, German New Wave, New Hollywood cinema, and British social, British social realism. I cannot say all that in one, in one go. All of these dozens of books and collections, how many are on the British urban genre? None until now, in Wonka said. Wonka's book, Black Boys, The Social Aesthetics of British Urban Film, published by Bloomsbury, offers the first dedicated analysis of black British urban cinema and TV. I'm okay. I'm, I'm not even gone through the rest of this article, but um, I'm copying that book. <laughs> That's happening. I'm getting that book some somehow. I'm getting that fucking book. Anyway, uh, where are we at? Uh, it explores. Uh, yeah, it's been widely praised as the first attempt to establish a genre as a subject for serious academic study. It explores black working class representation in British cinema and TV from the 1980s to recent years, including Storm Damage, Bullet Boy, Tower Block, Dreams, Attack the Block, and Top Boy. Uh, the quote, the British urban genre, which is predominantly around black people and about black people, should be as valuable to British film culture and to academic pursuit as all of the all of those other areas I mentioned. But it's not, and it hasn't been, and Wonka said. He added, we need a critical mass of, there's two ofs there for the editor here, uh, research like this, and it hasn't been so far because the urban genre is seen in really, really reductive and regressive terms, unquote. And one could traces the uh, quote concerted, er- yeah, concerted erasure of black identity from the mainstream sphere of British film and television unquote in the 1990s to the drama series Top Boy becoming the blockbuster cultural phenomenon it is today. Quote: I witnessed as a teenager the absence of seeing oneself on screen in various forms. There was a shift in the 2000s to this kind of post-multicultural celebration of difference. And I think that is an outcome of New Labour's more broader political agenda that had impacts on the cultural realm. He added, I think one of the reasons why the urban uh, as a genre has been denigrated more critically is because it always it's always associated with things like diversity or inclusion. The idea that if we can get young people off the street to play themselves in film, that will somehow move them away from a life of crime, unquote. Wonka said... There had never been a period of proportionate and realistic representation of black people in UK TV and film. There have been periods where there's little to no representation, and periods where there is an excess of depictions of one type of black British identity. The noughties and early 2010s is a good example of the latter, where criminality and violent black death were portrayed frequently. Still, in Wonka says, he feels reluctant to criticise the work from that period. Quote, I go into youth clubs and speak to young people who say I recognise that Top Boy isn't particularly positive in terms of the images and narratives, but this is real to me. Seeing our images for the first time being represented on mainstream TV is important to us and becomes quite compelling. And you have to allow space for that in our critique of positive and negative representation, unquote. And one could criticise what he described as an unsophisticated binary uh, that is found often in commentary on black British urban films and TV, where it is argued 
that negative or positive images will significantly influence society. Quote, we spent our childhood watching James Bond and has much more hyper-violence than we saw in Blue Story and Top Boy. Why? <laughs> That's a great fucking point. I've actually never thought about it like that, you know. That's actually crazy. Why are we not now decapitating people in the streets? Great fucking question. Great quote. Love that. The Black Lives Matter protests um, and the movement that followed has sparked an increase in, quote, different kinds of representations of us as black people in Britain, unquote. And one said he points to the rom-com Rye Lane and drama The Last Tree. Quote, now, I think we should appreciate those in our own terms uh, rather than make comparative analysis alongside a more negative representation of us because there's not the same way uh, that other identities are thinking about themselves with representation. And yeah, man, that's uh, that's that's great. That's um, that's really, really fucking perfect for me. And um, I am so freaking down um, to read this fucking book. Um, I need details. I need to know when this book is gonna come out. Please let me know. Um, I'm gonna look that up for myself, obviously. But um, yeah, man, it's just uh, sheesh. It's just a really, really good show. And I'm actually getting some good related stories here. Um, just just uh, randomly. Um, it's actually a good um. Lenny James, uh, the actor Lenny James, obviously, um, article on Horace Ove, um, who obviously recently died. Um, I'm going to actually try and see um, Pressure for the first time. I'm going to hit uh, the BFI's um, showing, uh, BFI Southbank is showing that film um, throughout November. Um, so that's definitely going to be something I'm going to be spinning and report back. Um, but there's a really good article here uh, called Once Bad, Now Knighted, How Horace Ove became the godfather of black British filmmaking, so there's a good shout there. Um, but yeah, man, shout out to um, Clive uh, for this, uh, for even making a book on this front, because I feel like, yeah, this is this is something that is not covered academically, and um, I would really love to read a genuine critical analysis of the past 10 years, um, past 10, 15 years, or well, the past century, um, you know, uh, from the 2000s onwards, of just how, you know, urban... Uh, urban cinema, black urban cinema, black British urban cinema has um, risen and uh, and has uh, you know taken the taken the mantle to actually put black black voices and black stories on the screen. But obviously, that's not the be all and end all, and that's not how you know we all live um, as uh, people of color. Um, but you know, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic to to uh, to. Uh, to digest. So, finish up with um, a uh, second uh, film segment, and uh, this is all about uh, Children of Men, um, the Alfonso Coral film. Um, from, from 2006 um, if you haven't seen Children of Men highly recommend um, top tier film um, really freaking good film and uh, as this article is about to get into um, you know kind of like a, a warning I guess on modern Britain right now um, it's called Children of Men 17 Years On A Grave Warning to a Nation Adrift written by Matt Gallagher via Byline Times so let's jump right in Rewatching Alfonso Cuarón's Children of Men in 2023 sparks a disturbing sense of familiarity. At the time of its release in 2006, it was perceived as a stern warning about xenophobia, totalitarianism, and the rise of the security state. 
a powerful indictment of the post-9-11 cultural landscape. Uh, the film vividly distills what Naomi Klein would go on to write about in The Shock Doctrine, how the chaos resulting from crisis creates opportunities for the powerful. Watching it today, Children of Men, loosely based on P.D. James's 1992 novel, has moved from the uncanny to the borderline prophetic, taking on a deeper and more, even more sinister salience. It's, it all too painfully reflects a broken Britain devoid of hope and purpose. The film follows protagonist Theo Clive Owen, a depressed activist turned bureaucrat living in an austere uh, climate-ravaged London in 2027. A pandemic stemming from pollution and ecological, ecological uh, decline has rendered humanity infertile, giving way to a myriad overlapping crises and plunging the globe into chaos. Propaganda bulletins throughout the film declare that, quote, the world has collapsed, only British soldiers on, unquote. I'm uh, very, <laughs> very confident of, uh, <laughs> of Koran to basis in Britain, by the way, just very funny to me, uh, considering how we just left the year and now we're just weak as shit. Uh, Theo returns uh, to his radical past uh, when he is reunited with his insurgent ex-wife, Julia Moore, who tasks him with getting transport papers for a migrant woman, Key, Claire Hope um, Ashite, uh, from his cousin in government. When Key turns out to be pregnant, Theo is forced to fight through both insurgents and military police to get her to a team of scientists that can save her and potentially the human race as well. Quran missed very little in his projection of modern Britain. The procedural dismantling of democracy by unchecked executive power mirrors the authoritarian legislation and lawless conduct of Boris Johnson, including the real criminalisation of peaceful protests and efforts to abandon human rights. The nihilistic rejection of climate science and utter failure to act on climate change implied in the film reflects our own critical failure to invest in a sustainable future. And the xenophobic vitriol towards refugees paired with a frenzied nationalist pride in, quote, soldiering on alone, unquote, uncannily resembles the, or when he said it, the exit campaign, um, to the point that some of the propaganda in the film could almost exist in the real world. But the most re resonant part of the film is the harrowing illustration of a country that has lost all hope. Systemic failures pile on top of each other, one after another, and no light is visible at the end of the tunnel. At the extreme end, it speaks to the rising tide of doomerism that is increasingly prevalent among the younger generations today, the notion that we are on an irreversible Daryl spiral of collapse and there is no way out. In Children of Men, the feeling of stagnation and malaise created by the crisis of, of fertility, which can be seen as symbolic of humanity's very real global climate emergency, leaves a defeated and lifeless Britain with no... Excuse me, with no hope of repairing itself, simply trudging through the chaos as the light, last lights of civilization slowly fade out. Dystopias exaggerate in order to criticize, and in that sense, Children of Men lacks the heavy handedness of counterparts like Orwell's 1984, Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, or Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. As the late writer Mark Fisher observed in Capitalist Realism, the story of Children of Men is, quote, specific to late capitalism, unquote. It describes people who are simply existing through the slow burn of societal collapse, suffering not due to a great force of evil, but because they all failed to imagine that anything else was possible. As in the film, the UK today seems to already be soldiering on, rather than encouraging or even tolerating new lines of thinking. 
Instead of investing in itself and building a country prepared for a century of ecological and social crisis, it is beginning to fall apart. The short-termist austerity regime of the past decade and a half has blocked Britain from long-term sol- problem-solving and completely debilitated the public sector. As a result, our schools and other public buildings are quite literally falling apart, our rivers and seas are brimming with sewage, and the social contract between state and citizen has broken under the weight of extreme inequality. The echoes of Margaret Thatcher's famous decree are still ringing in the ears of politicians and experts across the UK's political spectrum. There is no alternative. Global late-stage capitalism, in which all companies generate billions of dollars a day, pandemics merely present profit opportunities for the world's wealthiest, and carbon emissions continue to grow at an accelerating rate, is largely seen as the only option on the table in Britain. Our political system's complete failure to tackle the very real problems of our time, from poverty to the climate crisis, leaves people more hopeless than ever. It also might uh, might also help to partially explain anti-establishment populism and weaponised xenophobia, as easy answers that conveniently don't hold those who benefit from the status quo to account. The unfortunate reality is that the political and economic order in Britain today no longer functions. In both government and opposition, emphatic yet vague calls for economic growth and technological innovation offer nothing in the way of a true vision for the future. In lieu of such a vision, we get half-formed promises of competency, efficiency and fiscal responsibility. Instead of a battleground of tangible ideas for the future, politics today is mostly about mudslinging, scapegoating societies most vulnerable, especially migrants, and the airing of cultural grievances. This country largely seems to have forgotten how to believe in anything positive. Facing existential crisis, a lot of us, especially the youngest generations, are left feeling like we have a few have few ways out. The news is a constant cycle of doom and gloom, brewing existential dread and encouraging us to simply check out. Those of us who are somewhat checked in find ourselves doom scrolling, absorbing stories about collapsing infrastructure and rising temperatures, yet feeling powerless to change any of it. This invisible barrier to new kinds of thought and action leaves young people left to imagine only extinction. All of this taken together goes a long way towards explaining why more than 70% of young people now feel hopeless about the climate crisis, and more than half believe that humanity is doomed. It shines a light on why 75% polled in the uh, said the UK is heading in the wrong direction earlier this year, and why trust in politicians is reaching the lowest levels on record. The inescapable parallel between our timeline and that of children of men is the notion that no resistance is possible when defeat has already been conceded. As the film pro- uh, progresses, we watch the character of Theo evolve from a chain-smoking, whiskey-drinking nihilist into a bleeding heart radical. Children of Men's resolution centres on the protagonist's restored faith in humanity, in his ability to envision a world where he may actually want to live in. He may actually want to live in. Unlike the militant resistance group members that break down into infighting and seek to use Key's pregnancy for their own egotistical purposes, Theo puts everything on the line for the greater good. A pathway from dystopia was revealed, one he never could have imagined at the beginning of the story, and it rested upon Theo tossing away cynicism in favour of hope. Quaron implores us to relinquish our deep-seated fear of the unknown, to be as bold as the historical figures we venerate for enacting positive change. As he himself puts it, quote, I used to think that any solution would come from the paradigms I know. Now I think that the only thing is to think of the unimaginable, 
for the new generation, the unimaginable is not as unimaginable, unquote. As David Graeber and David Wengrow showed in The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, uh, human history is teeming with examples of willful and deliberative systemic change. Humans have a surprisingly long history of ditching systems and ideas that aren't working. First, they just have to be able to conceive of new ones. Too, uh, too simple. Um, yeah, too simple, yet monumentally difficult objectives might help us begin to shake our stagnation and build a hopeful outlook for 20, 21st century Britain. To take Quaron uh, up on his offer, we could start by simply doing more to create and build alternative world in our minds. Whether the medium be music, film, novels, poetry, essays, journalism, or campaigning. Secondly, uh, and more crucially, we can collaboratively fight for a democratic and fair political and social sphere, where new ideas are encouraged and true democratic deliberation once again takes centre stage. There is real power in creating culturally resonant stories about alternative worlds. Thomas More, I'm assuming with two O's there, uh, published Utopia in 1596, describing a monasterial world without private property, which triggered centuries of academic debate. Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, novels, including The Dispossessed in 1974 and Always Coming Home in 85, portrayed real alternative political economic systems uh, completely outside of our own. More recently, a Chobani yogurt advertisement from 2021 oddly offered a compelling vision of a technologically advanced yet communitarian society where humanity and nature coexist in harmony, emphasising that, quote, how we eat today feeds tomorrow, unquote. An important element of defeating cynicism is simply to begin building alternatives in the popular imagination, and we could certainly use more of that today. Britain must also awaken politically. Beyond the much-needed reforms to our first-past-the-post-electoral system, the House of Lords and the procedures holding ministers accountable, leaders and the public alike need to reimagine what democracy truly means in the 21st century. We must create safeguards to prevent strong men from taking quote-unquote strong men, uh, from taking advantage of outdated systems. We can fight for an honest, open and deliberative politics devoid of lies, name-calling and meaningless culture wars. In a forum like that, we could begin to the serious work of deciding what Britain's future is going to be. And the future need not be a thing of the past. Ursula K. Le Guin once argued, uh, while the power of today's late capitalism may seem inescapable, so too did the power of the divine rights of kings. Quote, any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings, unquote. As Coran said himself has said, quote, I'm absolutely pessimistic about the present, but I'm very optimistic about the future, unquote. That's a great place to um, finish right there, isn't it? I feel like um, that was a really... I do, I do love a good article that, you know, really explains how shit everything is, but, you know, makes a hearty attempt to actually you know, provide some sort of solutions, and, you know, the last bit really spoke to me, honestly, the last third, because I feel like, you know, I I sometimes watch the news, some, a lot of the time I don't, um, you know, I keep up, I keep up with current affairs, um, I think, in my own way, um, and I think I, I think I do it pretty well, um, you know, I do it partly with this podcast not all the time I don't always do current affairs here um sometimes I actively stave away from it like I have done this week with you know Israel and Palestine um but you know I still keep note of it and I still you know day by day um try to improve um improve on my 
on my worldview, improve on my own personal thinking, and um, and you know, and what I want for for the world and for myself, right? Um, and I, with that said, you know, I've 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 written a manifesto for a creative uh, a creative pl- project, so to speak, for myself and for hopefully others to join one day. Um, and that's my and that's my honest, um, very very honest um, want um, and my uh, and my own personal offer to you know the world, so to speak. Right? Um, it's genuine. That's genuinely how I see it. I see my uh, the manifesto I wrote, um, and you know, just to say, since I have the time, I've not been an hour yet. Um, Put Lucy, it's a manifesto, laying out a creative collective um, at first, but um, something bigger down the line um, where, you know, it starts with a certain amount of people and we, you know, we basically just, you know, create um, a, a bulk of work, um, hopefully show that work, um, whether it, you know, it doesn't have to be film or TV, but it can be, you know, um, it could be I don't know a graphic novel. It could be a novel. It could be a it could be an essay. It could be um, a fucking collective dissertation. Whatever it whatever it is, right? Um, or it could be any all of those things, and uh, we can all do it separately or together, regardless, right? I'm open on that front to how it's done. Um, but yeah, basically, it's a collective of people, a collective of creative people um, that you know are trying to break out of the mold of. Um, you know, all decisions being made by studios and corporations, and instead we do it all independently, and, uh, you know, and nothing stops us on that front, right, and then past that, um, we can make the statements that we want to make, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, give our visions, um, our collective and individual visions, um, for the future of not just the arts, um, for wherever we are, but, you know, but for the world as well, and, um, you know, the arts is a significant part of the world, um, and how humans live, and uh, that's my that's my way of getting through that. That's my way of getting through on that front, through how I see, um, for for how I want art to be, um, and not just you know what we've seen through the writer strikes and the actor strikes, where you know we're just beholden to, you know, a certain a certain amount of dickheads that won't pay people. Um, how about we just destroy all of that? How about we just burn that table and you know begin building something more equitable? Because um, they don't make the shows. They don't. They don't. They just you know they just say yes and no to things um, financial and and are all, always about the bottom line and not actually about um, you know producing creative works that actually are you know of worth and um, and that challenge people's views and um, and that challenge the status quo and. Um, you know, suggest new ideas that um, that get Mr. Gallagher was um, putting in the article there. Um, so that's the manifesto I've got. Um, I've written. Um, I have kind of published it, I guess. Uh, you can find it if you want to. Um, let me know if you want to read it. But um, yeah, it's just that's just that's just one. This is one idea I have, and um, that's my that's my that's my offer. You know, to to everything, and that's my solution to a lot of things. Um, but it's not a solution to everything, obviously, and there needs to be more. There needs to be more solutions um, on that front, and more, um, and more ideas to to produce, and you know, and to, and obviously, it's going to grind against um, what is 
always being said today, you know, going back to Israel Palestine, you know, a lot of the a lot of the mainstream media talk is just they they, they start they start at the wrong place. They start with the wrong questions. They they start by inviting Palestinian representatives of in some of any way to say, um, you know, do you, do you uh, re- do you reject Hamas? And I'm just like, well, that's not that's just a, that's a poor question to begin with. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not how to start a conversation. You don't say that with you don't say you don't invite an Israeli um, onto your uh, Israeli representative and you go like. Do you um uh, do you condemn um everything that you know the Israeli government and the IDF uh, do slaughtering you know um, Palestinian children and all that stuff um, and civilians? Do you do you do that? Yeah, they don't ask that question, um, and that's also a question that doesn't need to be asked right now. You know, there's better questions that can there's better first questions. That's what I'm saying. Um, but yeah, man. Uh, I feel like, you know, Children of Men is a fascinating film to get into. Um, again, if you haven't spun it, please go spin it. It's a very good film with very good um, cast and a very good director in Alfonso Cuaron um, and paints UK in a very interesting light. Um, but yeah, man, shout out to Mr. Gallagher on that front for around that piece. Very good piece, very fascinating piece. And, uh, um, and obviously links back to the environment as well, <laughs> funny enough, uh, that I didn't start. But yeah, we shall leave it there. Uh, I've rambled enough, ladies and gentlemen. From the 5 EPN. Uh, I'm Chai Tone. It's been what's good. Uh, intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for BZ's track. Uh, thanks, friend of 5 E Nappy Hire for BZ's charismatic for the interlude. You can always find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall definitely always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.